amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, Michigan, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet on this episode. UCLA PhD candidate in Asian languages and cultures, Tommy Tran, talks about his research concerning Japan's Korean diaspora, with a focus on Osaka's 80,000 residents with roots on Jeju Island. Join us as we discuss dialect code switching, Hala Mountain botany, and shamanic deity worship in a metropolis of 19 million people. This is the second of a two-part conversation. Let's get back to the contemporary Jeju residents in Japan. So you were in Osaka recently on a research trip. Yeah. This wasn't your first time in Osaka for research. Yeah. Okay, tell me again the name of the Korean area in the city. Sudohashi. So Sudohashi is in a section of, of um, Osaka called Ikunoku. And that, that area of Osaka is actually unusual for the city because it has the highest concentration of, of non-Japanese. Besides Koreans, who else? There's also Chinese and there's also Southeast Asians. Other okay. people live there. Ah. But Sudahashi is really where nearly all, it's mostly Koreans in Sudahashi okay. or descendants of Koreans. And you told me you thought it was 80,000? Yeah, roughly 80,000. How big is the area? Like, how many subway stops service the area? Like, how many square kilometers is the area? I'm not sure exactly how many, how far or how big it is, but there are, there are two subway stops that, that okay. go to Sudahashi. And if you walk across Sudahashi, it will take you about maybe about 20 minutes. Oh, that's it? Yeah. It's, oh. not, it's not that big. It's very, very concentrated. Okay, okay. So this is like old old 60s apartment buildings? Like... Oh, no, they're, they're um, townhouses. Okay. Very tight townhouses. The other interesting factor about Sudahashi is that because it wasn't destroyed in World War II, it retains a lot of the old character of Osaka. Oh, so what does that mean? Very, very tight neighborhoods. These um, these old style uh, townhouses that go in the style of, of the late Edo period. So this townhouse means what? Two story? Huh? Yeah, two, two story. Stories. Okay. Well, not late Edo period. But single family tight. homes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Single family homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These um. So basically, the the house they'd have the, the shop front and the bottom and the house on top. Okay. So like these old style townhouses. Ah. Osaka was not firebombed during the war? Or Osaka was firebombed. But this neighborhood was spared? Sudohashi was spared because there was nothing important there. Ah. So it was, it was an accident of history that that's where Korean people ended up congregating. Yeah. And now it's become like a ghetto, but it yeah. has uh, the characteristics of sort of that interesting older Japan. Yeah. If, if, you, if you go there, it's one of the very few places in Osaka where there aren't, there aren't many car streets. It's, hmm. it's all bike lanes. Okay. Well, how would you describe the socioeconomic climate of the neighborhood? The neighborhood... For for a time, it was um, it was pretty much a Korean ghetto. It was like you can kind of get 
get the sense of of this uh, CD red light district once you get off the subway. Because um, because for a long time Koreans couldn't couldn't get the same right as Japanese. They they couldn't do much official business. So usually what they would do are are unofficial businesses like love motels or or cafes like these hostess bars, things mm-hmm. like that, or pachinko parlors. Right. Pachinko being the fun, the fun game that you play with, like it's like pinball or something. Yeah, it's the gambling version of pinball. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, but, so the socioeconomic climate is tip like is it lower middle class or is it below that? It's lower middle class. It's mm-hmm. changing nowadays because now Thotohashi is actually becoming a tourist draw. To whom? Well, to young Korean or not young Korean, uh, young Japanese women, young Why? Japanese women who love K-pop. <laughs> really? Yeah. How do they see K-pop play out in Sudahachi? The funny thing about the Sudahachi neighborhood is that that before their main the main Koreatown market used to just service people within Sudahachi, so it was it was like your general neighborhood marketplace. But now with Sudahachi becoming a K-pop draw, a lot of these shops are converting into K-pop theme theme shops, or they're turning into cosmetics shops because co- Korean cosmetics are becoming popular among young Japanese women. Oh, crazy. So what was what used to be a normal public marketplace yeah. with um, <clears throat> uh, kimchi vendors, people selling fresh seafood, yeah. uh, other Korean treats and restaurants and all the normal things we'd see in Korea yeah. is now slowly seeing an influx of K-pop themed stuff yeah. and cosmetics Wow. Yeah. Uh, so that's really changing the face of the neighborhood? That's changing. You noticed that when you went back? Yeah. Huh. It was... I went there... No, I went, the first time I went there was actually in in May. Mm-hmm. And even then, there was a... There was, I noticed there was, there was a bit more of a gravitation towards K-pop-themed stuff. This new... I mean, it's not gentrification, but this new evolution of commerce mm-hmm. in uh, Sudahachi, aside... What is life like there for the Jeju diaspora within the Korean diaspora? Mm. Um, so this is like out of hundreds of thousands of people who yeah. are Korean in Osaka, yeah. uh, there are 80 or more thousand Japanese, I'm sorry, Jeju Korean people. Mm-hmm. How do they differentiate or how are they distinct? The unique feature of the Jeju community, as, as they, would, they would say about themselves, is that they can, they can code switch whenever they meet another Korean. Oh, right. From, so, from Jeju language to so, Korean. Not, not just to Korean, but also to the other dialects represented in Sudahashi. So they could, they could code switch with a Chola person, they could code, code switch with a Kyungsang person. No way. Yeah, but with, the, with each other, they'll speak exclusively in Jeju language. So part of the character of this area is that you have Jola province people yeah. shooting the breeze with Gyeongsangnam people, with Jeju people, with Gyeonggi people, with Seoul people. Yeah. What? That's crazy. Yeah. And they're, <laughs> they're all speaking their own dialect. Oh, wow. That's all. That's the other interesting thing. And so it. not everyone, but like it's common for people to code switch. And what is code switching? Code switching means you can you can um, you can change your language just just based on the context or with the person you're with. Okay. So if you're with a Jola person, you'll speak you'll speak in, in Jola dialect with them. This is one of the organic characteristics that have developed in Sudahachi yeah. in the last fifty years. Yeah. So I mean, people are integrally Korean, but do you see a lot of um, Korean brand names or? Uh, you mentioned K-pop. Like, are people living like Koreans that we know to live, like in Korea? Kind of yes and kind of no. And well, this is 
Now this might be a little superficial, but one thing I do know is that that a lot of the the older generations of of Koreans of Korean women in in um, in Sudahashi, you'll notice that they they seem to have aged a bit better than than Koreans in Korea. How so? Well, finding the ajama curl is extremely rare in Sudahashi. A lot of them keep their straight hair, and they and they still remain very stylish. Really? Yeah. Why do you think that difference is? Well, I think well, it could be because um, the the socioeconomic conditions in Korea, Korea, that because there's such there's such a regimented lifestyle here in Korea that everyone pretty much had to sacrifice so they can have their next meal. That there is that people certainly had a much harder life here than they had in Osaka. Not to say that they didn't have a hard, had it hard in Osaka, but, but it seems like they, they were able to age better in Osaka. But that 30, year, that 30 years of progress from post-war to the sort of 90s yeah. happened differently in this bizarro version of Korea yeah. in the middle of Osaka City. Yeah, and also, and also the Korean men in Osaka are quite different too. They're also, not, they're not these, they're not so hyper masculine as they are over here. So uh, it's like they're not, they're not so, they're not as concerned about their mas- showing off their masculinity. In fact, they seem to be a little, a little more on the quiet side. The Jeju Zayanichi mm-hmm. are they cut off or separate from the other Zayanichi community in Osaka? And how cut off are they from Japanese society? You, you, you suggest that they have developed differently than here on, on the mainland or in Jeju Island itself. Mm-hmm. But um, how integrated are they into Japan or into the broader Korean society? Are they distinctly Jeju? With each other, they'll, they'll be purely Jeju. In terms of language? In terms of language, in terms of, in terms of their memories, in terms of cult, cultural aspects. Like, they, they, will, they will communicate with other Koreans from other provinces, and they do... It's, it's similar to the way the diaspora works in the U.S. also. People may be of different regions, but, but they might keep um, what's their own because it's by family tradition or by identity. In the Sudahachi neighborhood, is it kind of depressing to witness? Like, walking around and, and seeing the people there, you kind of suggest it's a bit of a nicer Korea in certain ways, yeah. but it's essentially a Korean ghetto. So, yeah. what's your take? My take is that there's still... Well, there's still a big um, political issue about about their citizenship. We're, they, these, these people know no other country. Many of them, many of them actually can't go back to South Korea because they're associated with Chungyeon, this North Korean affiliated association, or they have no nationality because they affiliate themselves or they identify themselves as a pre-divided Korea. So many many people in this neighborhood actually can't physically go back to Korea. Mm people without a country in a way yeah so there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of very odd political situations within that well it's a very odd political situation in Sudahashi because um they are they're ghetto wise mm. even now if um like especially people who who came there during the colonial period because they came at a time at a con- when the country didn't exist anymore they essentially have no no recognition even within Japan. So they may be born in Japan, or they may have lived in Japan forever, but they're not allowed to receive government benefits in their retirement. So there's a lot of a lot of complex issues going on in Sudahashi that these people really are ghettoized. Mm. What was the focus of your research during the trip, uh, and what did you accomplish on this visit? My initial... Uh, 
My initial question was, uh, what sort of relationship did these people still have with Jeju? What kind of relationship did they try to maintain with Jeju? Even though many of them cannot go back or they don't go back as often. And what surprised me is that what surprised me is that even though they are they have this distance from Jeju nowadays, there's still at least a section of the community that's still trying to keep giving back to Jeju. Like they in, in what way? In what way? They're still trying to pull what little resources they have left to maybe contribute something to Jeju, or at least try to to bring their opinions to the governor. They actually still meet the governor at least twice a year. So they try to bring their opinions of what, what Jeju's development should be to the governor. Is this an outreach policy on the part of the Jeju provincial government? It's a little close. Hmm. In part of the reasons because um, because during during the 60s especially, the Sudahashi community was a huge help to Jeju in in contributing to the development of Kamgil Farms to the, the Tangerines. Yeah, to to Jeju National University. They actually sent a hundred thousand books to Jeju, Jeju National University. Today at Jeju JNU, there is a Zainichi uh, yeah. uh, building. Yeah. And like a center of research on Zainichi people. Yeah. Huh. Does, is there anything else like that in Korea? In Korea? Yeah, there should be around the country. There's just, I'm, there must I'm not really, be. Yeah. yeah, there must be. I'm not, I'm not as familiar with the rest of Korea than I am with Jeju. So what did you accomplish? <laughs> well, I found out that the, that, um, that the connection had been quite close, even though they're physically, they're physically distant from one another. And there are, all, there are all these political complications that prevent them from being close. But they still they still try to maintain that Jeju connection. They still identify with Jeju, and that's that was the most interesting thing. Mm. Because I, my thought was that, for like three or four generations down the line, maybe they don't have this feeling that they have any obligation to Jeju whatsoever. But at least with around with a small section of the community, there still is. With immigrant communities in North America, where we're both from, I mean, people still do have an association with where they're from. That's, yeah. That never leaves you. Yeah. So for Korean people who leave, I guess it's the same thing. For Jeju people who leave, there's this heritage back on the island. Yeah. Did anything surprise you on your visit uh, in terms of your research or just in terms of like what you observed around you? One thing that certainly did, that did surprise me is that how how much they actually remembered about their old Jeju lives. Like, um, like I remember when they were, when we, when I was um, asking them about, about certain plants on Halasan, well, I had, I had a photo book when I was asking them about, about uh, their old, what they remember of their Jeju lives. And it was actually a gift from the Zainichi Center over there, so, so it was kind of convenient. So Zainichi would, Center in Osaka. In Osaka. So, so when I was asking these people about what they remembered about these plants, surprisingly, many of them still remembered which plants you could eat and which plants you could not. So they still remembered what kind of what kind of flora that you could pick off of Halasan and make as food or make as medicine. Are you kidding me? So botany is one of the things that is like this constant in in terms of heritage and what people are drawn to. I'm not really sure. It was it was quite odd how they could remember that they haven't been well. They don't. They do go back to Jeju maybe once a year, but it's not like they're constantly in Halasan looking for these vegetables. But they can remember it. It's very odd. Well, I mean, life must be very different yeah. uh, in urban Osaka yeah. compared to Jeju, which 
many people, I mean, especially if they left 40 years ago, yeah. it was a very rural place, and much of it still is today. Yeah. Like, why, why would people remember what kind of vegetables you could eat off of the mountain? That's surprising. It's hardwired into their Jeju DNA. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about in terms of highlights of the trip academically or anything else you can say about uh, what you experienced on this last trip? Well, the most striking thing was when we heard about the Jeju Shrine in Osaka. Well, it's not exactly a Jeju Shrine in the same sense as a Shindang here. A Shindang meaning shamanism. Yeah, like a, shamanic, a village shamanic shrine. So there was kind of this uh, makeshift shrine that existed in Osaka since 1963. It was basically built on a squatter's house. So since 1963 until 2010, a community of Jeju people would would worship at this shrine and make offerings to the Dragon King. The name of the shrine was Yongwanggung, the Palace of the Dragon King. Dragon King is sort of part of the Jeju uh, pantheon of gods? He's one of the most important deities. He's, um, he's a deity who brings not only good fortune, but, but, a, but safety at sea and also a good catch. What was kind of odd about that, so a lot of these people are living in Osaka, one of the biggest cities in the world, yet they're yet they still try to maintain this connection to a deity associated with fishermen. This is a city of, of like, 7 million in the, in the metro area, 10 it's million? A, yeah, it's a huge, huge city. Mm-hmm. And they're still trying to maintain this connection to this tradition of, that normally fishermen or people from coastal villages would follow. An island that is like yeah. a couple hundred kilometers from yeah. Osaka. Tommy Tran is a graduate student from UCLA mm-hmm. of Asian Languages and Cultures. Yeah. Thank you for speaking with The Korea File. It's a pleasure. That's The Korea File for this week. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a feature contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and the Fair Observer website. If you like what you hear, like us on Facebook, and please leave a review of the show wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Then, tune in on February 10th for part one of a two-part conversation with Jenna Gibson, host and producer of the Korea Economic Institute's Korean Context podcast. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.